Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. by acknowledging that we meet on the land of um, the Kulin Nations and pay my respects to Elders past and present and also to extend that respect to any um, Elders or emerging leaders from um, uh, Aboriginal other nations who may be here this evening. My name is Sophie Lieberman and I'm he the Head of Public Programs and Education here at ACME and I'm delighted to be um, welcoming you this evening to our fifth in the ACME Conversation series, The Psychology of Fear, which we conveniently programmed on Halloween. Um, I'll hand over in just a quick second um, to our chair and panel, but before we do, I invite you to participate in the conversation using the hashtag. Um, and if you haven't already, um, I uh, also invite you to consider being at our next ACME conversation, which is going to be on superheroes, ethics and justice. So more goodness to delve into. But for this evening, we're interested in uh, answering the question, in our uncertain, uncertain era full of real-life horror, what is driving our appetite for true crime and fascination with the macabre? We have a panel who I think are going to help illuminate um, many different answers to that question. So I will welcome Emma Westwood, who is a film writer and commentator. She's the author of two books on cinema, Monster Movies and The Fly, a monograph on David Cronenberg's 1986 remake. Emma has written about cinema and the arts for numerous um, publications, and she also co-hosts the weekly film criticism show Plato's Cave on 3RRR. Thank you so much for being here, Emma. I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, without further ado, I'll introduce the panellists. Um, they're the far more interesting ones than me on this um, panel. So I have at the far end of the panel, Penelope Thomas, who is a project manager of applied industry research at AFTRS in Sydney. She has managed a number of research projects for the school, starting, uh, including VR Noir, which premiered at Vivid Ideas 2016. Her current projects include biometrics on audience engagement, the AFTRS CSIRO Data61 Media Index, and Precipice, a binaural, binaural, yep. have I said that right? Uh, narrative podcast project, narrative podcast project in collaboration with the Sydney Philharmonic Orchestra, um, or sorry, Sydney Quire. Philharmonic Choirs, <laughs> WNYC New York Public Radio, and BBC's Audio Science Research Unit, which premiered at Vivid 2017. So uh, I also have Professor Nick Haslam, and uh, Nick is Professor of Psychology at the University of Melbourne, a graduate of the University of Melbourne. He received his PhD in Clinical and Social Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania in 1993, and taught at the New School for Social Research in New York for several years before returning to Australia in 2002. Nick's research interests include personality, social perception and psychiatric classification and he's published extensively in these areas. In addition to his academic writing, Nick contributes regularly to The Conversation where he is a columnist 
an Australian book review and he has also written for The Monthly, The Guardian, The Washington Post, The Australian and two best Australian science writing anthologies. Nick is a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia, a former member of the ARC College, do you say ARC? ARC. ARC. A former head of the School of Psychological Sciences at this university and current president of the Society of Australasian Social Psychologists. And then directly beside me is Rosie Jones, an award-winning documentary writer, director and editor. Her most recent film, which uh, we'll be talking about a bit tonight, is The Family, an investigative work about the notorious Hamilton Byrne cult that premiered at the Melbourne International Film Festival in 2016. Uh, previous films from Rosie include The Triangle Wars, about an epic struggle over development on an iconic Australian foreshore, my homeland of St Kilda, um, Westall 66, a suburban UFO mystery, an investigation of Australia's biggest mass UFO sighting and obsessed with walking, an exploration of psychogeography with writer Will Self. She has also edited numerous documentaries commissioned by Australian and international broadcasters. So please welcome them here tonight. <laughs> Thank you guys. So I just wanted to ask uh, first, I'm intrigued by why you're all here tonight. So who has a fascination with the macabre or, and or the horrific? Who say? Don't be scared. <laughs> Come on, Keep your hands up if you're willing to tell me where you think that comes from. Oh. No? No one's willing? So I'm going to have to tell you why I think I am into it. Okay. All right. First of all, I think everyone is very different um, when it comes to what scares them, basically. But uh, broadly speaking, there's a whole lot of scary things that we sort of all buy into. That sort of comes about in trends. And at the moment, we've got this creepy clown trend that's going on with the rise of Stephen King's It um, being remade. And, um, and, and also that's come about generating an interest in Stephen King's works again as well. Um, but another trend is um, true crime and that's something that's our hook today and particularly we'll be hearing from Rosie about that with her brilliant documentary on Anne Hamilton Byrne and the Melbourne cult known as The Family. Um, but largely this, this trend of true crime has really come about at the moment thanks to the long form investigative storytelling that's been made available through online streaming services. Um, it's not a new thing by any means, but it's kind of taken on a new form. Uh, there's, you know, been a lot of trends like this in the past, something like Satanic Panic from the 80s. I don't know whether anyone here would know about that. Um, hopefully I'll get to show you a clip at the end of this presentation to sort of end on a light note in case we've scared the hell out of you. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, anyway, first I'd like to sort of present myself as the guinea pig here and um, I'll just see if I can move this on. There you go. All right. So I wrote a book on monster movies where I interviewed a filmmaker who's called Adam Simon. Uh, he said something that really resonated with me. Uh, he's made a doco on horror movies called The American Nightmare. Uh, and he references in it in what I'm about to read to you. So, he says, 
As a filmmaker, I think horror is one of those forms, monsters in particular, that people select early on or it selects them. Mysteries are a bit that way too, in the way that people writing them or making them tend to be great consumers of mysteries to begin with, which isn't true of all genre forms. The documentary I made, Adam Simon talking, The American Nightmare, was partly an attempt for me to answer the question, why was it that at the age of 8 through to 12, an age when you're most receptive to ideas, was I drawn to horror movies? Who knows? People can go off with a whole lot of psychological ideas of why. Almost every kid goes through a stage of liking dinosaurs or enormous creatures. There's certainly something that comes from the experience of being a small creature in a world of large, powerful, dominant giants that have control over your fate. I think some movies, and this applies more narrowly to monsters than to horror in general, uh, often play with issues of scale and size. That might seem obvious, but we underestimate the fact that our sense of the world comes from our embodiment within it. And not only do we begin very small, but we begin in a state of almost constant metamorphosis. We experience our bodies in all kinds of bizarre ways as children, and we are, in a way that we will never be again, surrounded by members of the species that are of a vastly different size. That in itself is somewhat monstrous. So I think this really applies to me. This is actually my family <laughs> up here on the screen. Not the family no, that you wrote. No, not that family. Um, they're really actually quite a very normal family, although that might look kind of strange. Stra strangely normal in a normal, dysfunctional sense. A dysfunctional sense, I should say. So what we have here is, that's my grandfather up the back, my mother and father in the middle. I'm the little one. So I'm the little one in the monstrous, uh, the, the monstrous setting. My grandmother's there, and this guy's called Peghead, right? <laughs> now Peghead was, you know, he wasn't, it wasn't creepy like Peghead came for dinner and hung out and watched TV or anything like that. <laughs> Peghead was actually an invention of my uncle's. He liked to do strange photographic works and this was one of the creators, him and his best, uh, one of the, cre the cre creations him and his, um, his best friend made uh, to take photographs of. And this is one that he decided to take photographs of with, with us. Um, there was another character called Rocket Man and he took off for the moon and never came back again. That's what was explained to me. I kind of wanted him to come back, but he never came back. So as you can imagine, I was fascinated with Peghead. I think I was about three there, <laughs> so it's quite a bit an interesting exposure. Um, and you know what child wouldn't be? I mean, I think kids are always really um, interested in the the magical and the make believe and what doesn't seem real or part of that of their actual reality. So maybe Adam Simon actually does have a point when he says that you know. Children are sympathetic to monsters because, in essence, they are monsters, really. Or maybe children are just more imaginative, really. It could be just as simple as that. But um, also, as a kid, my partner in crime was my cousin, Chris, who was a weak difference in age to me. And we fancied ourselves as spies and <coughs> investigators, private investigators, and we had sort of all manner of secret plans. I don't know really what we were planning, but we had them and we, we'd set booby traps and we'd 
do surveillance from trees and things like that. And my grandmother actually lived opposite a um, what was essentially a refugee hostel. I don't know whether there were new immigrants to Australia. It was kind of like a much nicer version of Manus Island on Australian soil in the 1960s. And um, these, these huts, by the time I was around in the 70s, these had all been abandoned. All the, um, the inhabitants had been placed in homes. So there were just these cylindrical, cylindrical half huts that were um, empty and they had a playground at the front. And my grandmother decided that she didn't want us hanging around there in these empty huts. So she actually showed us a photo fit of a criminal from the newspaper <laughs> and told us that it was a bad man that was hanging around in the hostel. And this idea was to deter us so we wouldn't go there. But on it had absolutely the opposite effect. Then we were so much more determined to go to the hostel because we thought we'd capture the bad man because we really fancied ourselves to be these, you know, I don't know, spies, private investigators, mini James, James and Jane Bonds in the making. So this sort of thing all progressed to loving, uh, you know, horror, true crime, everything on screen. And it started with an unsupervised watching of The Exorcist at age 11. And I watched it by myself. And then I watched it again, straight afterwards, slightly obsessed. Um, advent of VHS, you know, it allowed a whole lot of discovery. Uh, sought out everything that was weird and wonderful, watched movie marathons, rewound the gory bits over and over again with Peghead, well, in his other form, aka Ross. And um, basically, you know, this, this is where I've developed an interest that has actually become a professional interest and I, I write about horror movies in this day and age. Another cousin, not the, the one that was into spying with me, but another cousin, said to a friend, um, said to his manager at work, uh, told him what I was into and what I was interested in, and his manager said, your cousin needs serious help. He actually <laughs> said serious help. I'm wondering, Nick, do I need serious help? Am I deranged? <laughs> I can't tell yet. Um, <coughs> Peghead does provide some evidence, and I need to give you a very expensive set of psychological tests to oh, know for it? sure. Um, <laughs> But look, I think um, it sounds like you came out pretty much just fine in spite of all of this. And maybe you just didn't let go of some of the tendencies that you had, whereas most of us have it beaten out of us at some point. Well, exactly that. How do you think, do I fit the, from what I've said, the profile of someone who would be into this sort of thing? Or, you know, is there another way? Can people come at this from a whole lot of different psychological angles? Yeah, look, I think there's no single profile, at least um, what limited research has been done on um, the, 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 the sorts of people who like uh, gore and the macabre. Uh, There's been some really interesting work in England on um, sort of dimensions of entertainment preferences, and people tend to find there's about five fundamental ways in which people differ in the kinds of culture that uh, turns them on. And what horror movies tends to, uh, liking for them, tends to uh, relate to is this broader dimension that's called a dark dimension. And the dark dimension essentially involves preference for um, horror movies, uh, uh, cult movies of other sorts, uh, but also goes with things like liking edgier music, more angular, uh, aggressive um, music. It also goes with liking erotica. Um, it has a, 
a, a slew of correlations with people's personality characteristics. So you find that people who tend to like darker genres uh, of culture, um, they tend to be a little bit less cooperative, a little bit more defiant, a little bit Ooh. more rebellious. Okay. Um, you know, the sorts of people who don't do what their mothers um, say in terms of um, going to uh, uh, places where bad men are known to inhabit. Yeah. Uh, people who work for themselves. Could be that as well. Can't subscribe to one boss. No, thank you. But, that is, uh, and, but also more imaginative, you know, have higher in a dimension we call openness to experience, where people are a little bit more um, sort of open to fantasy, um, a bit more intellectual in their interests. Um, uh, there's no relationship whatsoever between liking dark culture and being more neurotic. Uh -huh. You're neither healthy or unhealthier in that regard. I mean, these are just averages, so you might be different. Uh, so, look, there's, there's, I think in answer to your question, there is a sort of average profile. But people can come at this from all sorts of reasons, probably some quite healthy and creative and probably others a bit less so, uh, and maybe more uh, obsessed. But um, uh, the short answer is there's just... Um, a kind of, yeah. a, a kind of, you know, dark dimension underlying a lot of it. I think one of the interesting things from that research, if you'll let me just go on mm. a bit further about it, sure. uh, liking horror movies isn't only about loving the darkness. People who tend to like them also uh, score somewhat higher than average on a uh, dimension called uh, communal, which is liking sorts of culture which involve some sort of interpersonal drama. So it's not just solitary, you know, there's not just one person stabbing herself, mm. uh, there's other people involved, uh, and that's sort of uh, the interpersonal drama of it, I think, is part of the attraction. And there's also a fourth dimension called um, the thrill dimension, or thrilling dimension, uh, which involves um, seeking excitement and novelty and, and thrills. Uh, and people who like horror movies tend to be um, um, of that sort as well. They like novelty, they like sen um, sensation, they don't have a very high tolerance for boredom. Mm. Okay, yes. Attention deficiency, that's me. Um, now, Pen, I'll pass this over to you so you can Thank work you. with it. But maybe you can first, your, your work with biometrics, can we say that you are actually interested in horror and the macabre, or are you not? We can empirically say that you are engaged while you are watching it. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't necessarily, um, we can't necessarily be definite about the type of engagement, the valence of that engagement. Uh, we can make inferences um, against what you're actually looking at um, to determine what kind of sentiment or what kind of emotion you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we can get a very true read. We can tap into the unconscious, that first nanosecond response to stimuli. Right, okay. Through this. Maybe I'm be um, best to let you explain what you're going to be showing people and what they're going to be seeing. Sure. Today. All right. Okay, I was, um, let me just. I think we might jump over that one. Okay, earliest memory of fear. I have a very quick first story if you don't mind. Go for um, it. So I wanted to share this with you for a reason, but um, when I, I was six, we lived in a house that backed onto a paddock. And the paddock wasn't ours, but it was, it was uh, a paddock that we would go into um, through a barbed wire fence, over a creek, up the hill, to the top of the hill, and into this tree. It was a fantastic climbing tree. 
Um, but the problem was in that paddock was also a Brahmin bull. I don't know if you know Brahmin bulls, but they have very big horns. And we were allowed to go and adventure and play in this paddock. It was fine as long as we didn't antagonise the bull. This one day mum said uh, we had to get back by a certain time because there was going to be a solar eclipse. And we said, you know, why, what's that? She explained what it was and she said, if you look, you can lose your sight um, if you look at the sun. So we thought, wow, okay, we better get back. Um, off we went, out the back of the house, through the barbed wire fence, holding it up for the other person with one hand, one foot, squeezing through, through the paddock, through the creek, up the hill, all the while looking to see if the Brahmin bull was antagonised, and into that tree. And of course, being children, you know, we lost track of time. We did talk about the eclipse and we talked about what it would be like to lose sight. Um, but we lost track of time until we heard the bell and mum had this bell that she would ring telling us to come home and it was usually a lovely laconic, you know, time to come home, lamb chops are on, whatever. But this day it was a frenetic get your butts home now ring and we scrambled down out of that tree and to, to a sky that was very, very dark and a really eerie light. It was just the strangest feeling. And of course we remembered the eclipse and we thought, um, right, this isn't good. So we panicked and we started shouting at each other as children do when they're trying to figure out, I guess, what's, what, what, what to, to make of it. <laughs> and my sister said, run and close your eyes. So we started down the hill, um, running, running, falling over, screaming. Uh, eyes closed. I really wanted to know what that bull was doing, so I was just kind of weighing up the losing sight against death by bull, and I decided it'd be great to just take a little squeeze through my fingers. Um, and it was a bit like, I don't know if you've seen that episode of Doctor Who where the angels, you know, it was like, yeah, every time I, I looked through, it seemed that the bull had suddenly moved to a different position. It was very scary. So we scrambled, scrambled down the hill. Anyway, back through the paddock, through the creek, through the barbed wire fence, into the house. Mum was quite amused when she saw us. She realised kind of what we'd been through. But um, I, was, I really still wanted to know what was going on with that bull. And I remember looking out through the curtain and seeing the bull at the barbed wire fence. And it wasn't usually there. So it was definitely, it was uh, antagonised that day. But the point of the story is that scrambling down that hill, um, I think fear became a, a stew of dysfunction. So not only was my, my brain was scrambling for information, I think, um, with one source of information down. So I was actually, I remember that feeling of trying, you know, figuring out how to get down there as quick as possible based on a recollection of what that environment was like. But it was also the hierarchy of fear of, you know, disobeying mother, embarrassing myself in front of the older peers, um, losing my sight or death by bull. So there was a lot going on. It was a real tangle. Um, the point of which is to introduce biometrics by saying that we at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, we are using it and um, it might be the start of trying to untangle those kinds of situations and that fear. Not only untangle, untangle it, but measure it. Um, we are able to measure uh, what is going on when people are, um, are responding to stimuli. So that's my story. Let's move on. 
Uh, biometric sensors include, that we are using include galvanic skin response, eye tracking and facial expression analysis. I'm not going to read that slide to you, I'm sure you're capable of doing it yourself. But um, suffice to say that the galvanic skin response is, um, is the, you can't lie with this one and I'm wearing it here so that you can see. It measures uh, skin conductance, slight variations in sweat. Um, we're talking very slight, so not buckets of sweat. And this one in the centre is pulse or heart rate. Um, so that we use, and it's important to combine it with other sensors because this tells us the level of engagement, but it doesn't tell us the type or the valence. Uh, we use facial expression analysis and eye tracking to triangulate, and we also build um, self-reportage surveys into the tests. So rather than tell you, I'm going to show you, we did a study this week, uh, sorry, not this week, <coughs> for this week called Tapping Into Fear. Um, it, we, we took five clips from YouTube and we had a small sample group watch these clips and then we asked them to complete a survey at the end. You can see there's the survey questions there, identify any clip that you have seen before of the five and obviously we needed to know whether they, it was the first time they were viewing them. Rate the clips according to how scary you found them and what are your three greatest fears? Any questions so far? No? Okay, so I'm going to show you, this may actually autoplay. You can see the live tracking, the timeline moving from left to right. That top green line is the heart rate. The second line down is the galvanic skin. And on the video itself, you can see the heat map where people were looking. And this is an aggregate of all across the whole sample group. So the greens are heart rate. The, the top green line is heart rate. The second, the second blue. The blue is the galvanic skin response, so sweat and pulse. And what's I the sweat. third blue that's really quite That's the valence. So that that is, as I said, it's an aggregate of all, but that actually tells us that they're the, the type of engagement, be it joy, sadness, contempt, disgust, fear. Surprise. Surprise, <laughs> yeah, and there's another one. It's probably there. Um, that tells us that the levels of one or more of those is increasing it's or increasing. decreasing. Okay. And we're looking at event-related peaks on, on those reads. So can you tell us, what are those peaks on this um, that we're seeing there? Event-related peaks. So that's telling us on the, which one? The, the blue? Oh, the, 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 the lowest blue? Yeah. So wherever yeah. you see a peak, that's where the aggregate is that people were experiencing that. Right. And of course, as I said, this is all based on the facial expression analysis. Mm -hmm. So it's just tiny micro expressions. It's not even necessarily visible to the human eye with the facial recognition, with the facial expression analysis. Um, yeah, I want to show you the next clip. Did everyone follow that? Oh, yep. next clip. This one I call spider ear. <laughs> Just so you know what's in there. <laughs> You've got the heat sensors over it. That's probably protecting you all. 
<laughs> you can see people are really looking at that little spider's eyes. Some people, oh, oh, well, it may be an avoidance, the green dots outside, away from the spider. Or it might be that they're interested in the earring. Or <laughs> <laughs> so he's coming out, he or she, spider. Spider and tiger. Is there another spider inside there? Inside That's what I'm ear? wondering. I thought there was a second one, but maybe it's. You're just an me. optimist. That's I fantastic. Mean, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, just, I'm sure that family, that spider has friends. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at the next one. Has anyone seen this before? Yeah. 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 Okay. Notice the galvanic skin response aggregate in these results, quite high all the way through. So the heat map we can see looking at the door handle, yeah. looking at her eyes, then her mouth. at her eye. What is she thinking? What's she feeling? What's she going to do? <laughs> Sorry about that. Right. Is, these guys got a feature film deal out of that, so yeah. How are we all feeling? Good? That's that's interesting though, the way that you can see how the focus in on the mm. eyes, how people do look at the mm. eyes. Mm. the cat was not harmed in the making of that commercial. 
It was caught in the uh, actual, um, the, 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 what do you call it? Sunroof. Sunroof. The sunroof of the car. So, um, actually, Penn said that was a banned ad. It ended up getting banned. Mm. So, you couldn't see it as well can... there, which is probably okay. Mm. But apparently, the cat's okay. So but you so. can see also with the read, the data read there, right at the end, it just shoots up because, of course, that's horrendous. Okay. Last one. I took the data. Have you seen Do you it? You know this one? Yeah. Some of the <laughs> German? You know what that means? Oh, we know that. Ooh, anyway. um, I think that the interesting thing is also sound, how mm. sound is so important in playing into the fear and creating this sense of fear. Mm. So yes, go on with the results. All right, uh, in, in summary indeed, but uh, just curious to know, which video do you, th do you think participants rated as the most scary? Just show of hands, Water Cave? Spider ear, home horror, cat car, scenic zombie. Okay, <laughs> which which video do you think that biometrics measured the highest level of engagement? Water cave, spider ear, home horror, cat car, <coughs> scenic zombie. Hmm. All right, before we get to the results. Let's just have a quick look at question two. Uh, just so you know, very few of our respondents had seen any of those clips. Only one had seen Spider Ear and, and two had seen Scenic Drive. So that was a really good baseline for us. Question two, rank each clip according to how scary you found it. You can see that uh, the scariest um, was considered to be home horror, quite scary. There are five. Um, participants that said it was quite scary. Four said a little scary, but it's the only one that had zero. The only one that had zero responses for not scary at all. Um, the scenic drive was three at quite scary, three at very scary, two highest ranking. So we asked, what are your three greatest fears? Most people I find are able to fairly quickly tell you what their three greatest fears are. There was a very high um, level of drowning and, th and fears associated with drowning, so deep water, darkness, the dark, and a combination darkness underwater. Yet the water cave was not considered to be a scary video, so interesting. Spiders, that snakes, cockroaches, reptiles, heights, falling, bungee jumping. Again, the spiders, that was a low ranking in terms of people thinking it was scary or not, yet it's one of the highest fears. Death, dying alone, blood, dead body, and then there were a few, um, a few randoms, so bankruptcy, crashing into a track. I think some of these were quite specific because people actually had experienced them and, and were afraid of reliving it. So, um, where is it? Breaking my knee again would definitely <laughs> fall into that category. Um, and then more esoteric, not, not having enough time to see the world, um, creaking sounds, things like that. Okay. So, moving right along, uh, these are our biometric results. 
you are right. A lot of you said that um, home horror, home horror was definitely the highest um, in terms of um, galvanic skin response, 45.5% aggregate across. And scenic drive and cat car came in second, but as you can see, much lower at 27.3. Facial expression, uh, you can see there, scenic drive, anger was the highest. So I don't know if people say, oh, you, yeah, get that zombie. Or maybe they didn't like scenic no, drive. Think, Do you I, think? I, I think a there's a response of people, they feel angry that they've been scared by that. Especially a jump oh, scare. Yeah. Because it's kind of, they feel cheated. Yeah. Jump scares, I think right. people feel cheated. Yeah. Right. Mm. I mean, these inferences you can make, but you, you, we don't know. We'd have to do a lot more questioning to find out. Sadness, the only ranking for sadness was cat, car cat, which is nice to see. Discussed um, scenic drive again. I guess they found the zombie joy. very unattractive. Um, joy, scenic drive. So, joy registered, as you can see across there, are highly in most of them um, compared to other, other, um, sent, other emotions. So, I'm wondering if that's a defense mechanism that we use when we see something that frightens us. Do we, do we laugh? I don't know. Surprise, uh, spider ear. I think people were surprised to see there was a spider in that ear. Uh, fear, look at that, zero across. So that's a talking point. Contempt, uh, scenic drive at 0 0.01, sorry, 0 0.105. Any questions? I have a question. Okay. That's interesting. Here we're sitting here talking about the psychology of fear. We've got zero <laughs> right across there. So is the perception of fear really a combination of other elements into one? Nick? What do oh, you think, Nick? Uh, <laughs> yes. no, I mean, I think fear is quite basic. I'm not, uh, there might be something just specific about how it was measured in this case. I mean, I think disgust is fascinating, and I, I was going to talk about that later. But it is one of those things where a lot of these experiences aren't just, it's not just dread of something bad happening to you, it's a kind of icky revulsion. And so it's not surprising that the, the home horror one, which to me was actually quite scary, nothing mm. you can relate to that, but there's nothing icky about it. It's more there's just this kind of freaky woman in my bedroom. Um, not, that's not how it sounded. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> whereas, <coughs> the, you know, the, there's a kind of moral disgust at the cat. How could, how could that horrible car try to eat that beautiful cat? There's the, the disgust at the disgusting, you know, um, spider um, and, you know, the... the um, a horrible ghoulish figure in the in the scenic drive. I think disgust is different from fear. It had been ignored as an emotion until quite recently, mm. but it, um, and it certainly can combine with fear. So probably what you're getting there, mm. I think you could define horror almost as a kind of merging of uh, disgust uh, and fear in revulsion. Mm. Okay. What um, in that oh so long ago in that initial passage that I read out from Adam Simon he talked about um, mystery as well and this interest in mystery and I think that true crime as well has an element of mystery about it we're playing detectives through the filmmaker and sometimes in something like the one that we've got actually in our um, in our graphic there making a murderer there is act, the, the mystery continues it's uh, we're still weighing up whether he is an actual killer or not um, sometimes, though, there are ones that are a little bit more transparent 
um, in whether they're real or not. And I'm going to show you one that I think is quite transparent. Hopefully you'll feel the same way. It comes from the satanic panic craze of the 80s. And uh, I got to see this clip at the release of a launch of a book called Satanic Panic that's edited by Kayla Janice and Paul Carupe. And it was actually, this isn't a true uh, news item that was played on the Today Show in 1984 in um, the US. So it's got a little bit of preamble from the journalists at the start, but then it gets right into it, so. In the beginning, it was a little hard to believe, and I go home at night and I say, well, this is crazy, this is a little too weird for me. But after four years, you kind of get into the swing of it, it, gets, it becomes normal. I mean, if you've seen our haunted toaster. Right here where it says put one slice, we heard, I am the devil. Yeah, what kind of <laughs> voice did the devil have? Um, a, a very low voice, I'd say, sounded like Eli Wallach. Have you saved any of this satanic toast? Yes, I did save it because I wanted to be sure that somebody else would see it. Now this one, can you see that, Richard? <laughs> Satan lives. Uh, just terrible. Is the toaster still possessed? I, I, we're st we still have trouble off and on with it, yes. Oh, see, now it's... I just hold it down. It seems to be aware, I... Oh! Oh! Why have you kept this toaster? Well, Richard, you know, when all is said and done, it makes good toast. For today, Boyd Matson, NBC News, Boca Raton, Florida. <laughs> there you go. So believe it or not, thank you everyone for joining us tonight. Can you please thank the panel? Thank and thanks to you too. You've been listening to an Acme Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions and film screenings.